Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 20th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. The book of Proverbs records for us the divine wisdom found in the words of King Lemuel, words that were taught to him by his mother. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Good to be back. So we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss. Let's talk just the book of Proverbs in general before we deal with this specific section. What do we need to know about the book of Proverbs, about wisdom literature that will help us as we start looking at this specific section as well? Yeah, well, wisdom literature in general, uh, that, you know, a lot of people just think that the Proverbs are, you know, just kind of wise sayings, uh, and, you know, it's certainly a lot of, of Proverbs. There are these wise sayings that uh, you might even find in other wisdom literature outside of Scripture and outside of, you know, Jewish uh, and Christian sources, but uh, actually there's a, a lot, you know, you look at the first nine chapters and you see a whole lot about uh, wisdom, not just being something that is, you know, wise sayings that we can then apply in our lives, but wisdom coming from God himself. And so the very heart of it is found right in chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And again, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom uh, later on in uh, chapter 9. And so this is a, a, a thought throughout the entire book of of Proverbs uh, when we look at the, the part that's uh, actually given by Solomon kind of a central theme there. Uh, and then kind of toward the end, as uh, you see with the men of Hezekiah, you see more of a theme of the righteous versus the wicked and what's the right thing to do as far as that goes. Um, but ultimately, we ought to see that wisdom is an attribute uh, of God and, and really God himself, Christ uh, incarnate, is wisdom from on high. And we see that that wisdom is, as we look at the New Testament, shown to us most clearly uh, in what most people call foolishness, which is the cross of Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And so uh, there's always going to be a return to uh, wisdom coming from the Lord himself and wisdom being the Lord himself, so that we we don't just look at all of this only as you know practical application for our lives, which I think a, a lot of people leave it at that. There's certainly a part, parts of that, of course, um, but we need to start with you know, where does it all begin? Where's the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of the Lord itself? Right. That's that's what makes the book of Proverbs unique. We've seen that through the section that was composed by Solomon, through the section that was composed by Solomon, but copied by Hezekiah's men yesterday in chapter 30, we saw the words of Agur. Today we get the words of King Lemuel. So there, there are these parts of the book of Proverbs that were not composed by Solomon. If I, if I slip today and say, Solomon says, just you'll have to forgive me because I've been saying it for so long here in the book of Proverbs. Today we've got, though, the words of King Lemuel. What do we know about King Lemuel, who this might be? 
So, Lemuel isn't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, and so this is a unique thing to see his name there. Uh, so, the name itself means dedicated to God, and, you know, in the Hebrew, it actually doesn't say King Lemuel, it says uh, that Lemuel is a king. And, you know, it might be a minute little point there, but it's kind of important in the sense that, is this really a name of a king, or is this more a pseudonym for a, a faithful king that we would know? You know, you're talking about the men of Hezekiah. A lot of people think that this is simply a pseudonym for King Hezekiah, who is one of the faithful kings, right? Who, you know, we know the story of Hezekiah and how uh, the Assyrians were were sent away through the Lord and uh, all those, what was 195,000 killed in one one day, Um we hear about how God extended Hezekiah's life because of his faithfulness, uh, and we hear, you know, many good things about King Hezekiah. And so, so many people will think that Lemuel is simply a pseudonym for Hezekiah himself, considering the context of Proverbs, uh, from Proverbs 25 through 29. Uh, so that that's one possibility. The other option is really only King Josiah, because he's the only uh, other good, faithful king uh, in the t- in Judah during that time, and so. Uh, I, I kind of fall down in this is a pseudonym for, for King Hezekiah, but uh, we don't really know. It could be a king of whom we're not aware since, you know, we're not actually told it's a pseudonym, but just kind of gleaning things from the context uh, and not knowing anything about any Lemuel, we, we we could be on pretty good footing if we were to say maybe this is King Hezekiah himself. Now, one interesting thing, too, is the, the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, so the Proverbs here in the Septuagint, uh, would actually just translate Lemuel as from God. Um, and so that's an interesting thing, too, that, you know, whether, you know, you know how Hebrew names are like this, where you, the names mean something. Uh, I mean, these days we don't always think about that. My name's Stephen. Stephen means crown, you know, comes from mm-hmm. the Greek, Stephanos, you know, garland or crown. And so here, maybe it's just, you know, uh, there's a reason for that name from God, uh, but it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. So with all that said, uh, there is some confusion. There's not really uh, complete clarity, but I, for my part, would say that uh, this would be more of wisdom that Hezekiah, King Hezekiah has. That, and that makes good sense. Uh, just to the, the point where you brought up the Septuagint, so the, the idea there would be, rather than translating it, say, the words of Lemuel King, but but rather translating something like the words of the one dedicated to God who was king, or, or something like that, where you, rather than right. being a name, it's a description of this king himself. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. So it'd be, it'd be one-to-one... Uh, or from one who's dedicated to God or belonging to God. Sure. And in that sense, then Hezekiah is an obvious choice. As you said, he and Josiah are really the only two that follow Solomon that makes sense to it. If you're going to attach a name, those would be the two that would come up most easily. And Hezekiah, having been mentioned already in the book, again, is a logical choice. So the words of, of King Lemuel, perhaps Hezekiah, let's go ahead and read here in Proverbs chapter 31. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? 
Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's the text for today, Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9. So, Pastor Preuss, we we talked about the words of King Lemuel. Then it says, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, we've seen in the book of Proverbs the importance of parents teaching their children during those first nine chapters, particularly over and over again, Psalm would say, my son, listen. And we've seen fathers and mothers both, but here is a place where the mother particularly is emphasized. What's going on in this very first verse? Yeah, you know, you've heard about the Proverbs 31 woman. Usually you don't think about this section, Um, but this is a part of a woman's uh, uh, life. If she is given by God to be a mother, uh, is to teach her children God's Word. And uh, mothers, we know, play a crucial role in raising godly children, uh, and they do it by passing down God's Word to them and disciplining them in it. And Scripture clearly teaches that fathers are to head this effort, and so we hear fathers do not exasperate or provoke your children uh, to, to anger, but bring them up in the, the uh, instruction of the Lord. And so uh, that's, that's certainly true, but it's not uh, an either-or thing. Uh, as, pastor, as fathers head this effort, mothers often, uh, for one reason or another, take up this role. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, is, is a replacement, right? You have to pick up the slack from an absent father, and by absent, I mean, we know that doesn't just mean physically absent, but just being there and not caring about God's Word. But other times it's as a co-regent, uh, as some like to put it. Uh, the, the mother's simply around the children more than the father, uh, especially when they're young. So when I was at work this morning, I uh, can say that my wife's probably going to be you know, reading some Bible stories to the kids, right? And so I'm not necessarily doing that at all times, but she is as their as their mother. And so it's a wonderful thing that God has uh, mothers teach the children, being around them more. And so Lemuel's mother here uh, received this oracle, uh, and this is either from a prophet or directly from God uh, herself she received it. And we, we see an example of that in uh, Elizabeth, Right, with Elizabeth being inspired by the Spirit to sing her song, uh, or Mary with the Magnificat. Uh, and so she's now passing it on to her son. This is something very particular, giving him God's word on the behavior of a godly king. So with that, you know, you see the importance of, of mothers. We see that elsewhere in Proverbs, as you had noted. And one part that I think is you know interesting is when in Solomon chapter 4, where he mentions how you know, he was he, when he was a tender child, you know, before his mother. And it's not just the father who's teaching them. There's always this sense of, of the father and the mother together doing this. Obviously, the father is the head and the mother then is the co-regent. Um, or how about Timothy? I think mm-hmm. Timothy is one of the examples that's really helpful for us to see that he not only had a godly mother, but he also had a godly grandmother. So Lois and Eunice... Uh, raised him in the faith, 
And, you know, that's why St. Paul says to him that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, or which are able to make you wise unto salvation, and so on. So we, we see that with godly mothers, um, together with godly fathers, hand down God's Word, and it's a, a wonderful gift uh, to have that. I know I can certainly testify to that for myself, uh, that my dad, even being a pastor, because my dad's a pastor, that my mother taught us so much of God's Word, too, and handed down the wisdom as well. So it's a, it's a good thing for us to see this here, maybe to kind of look at the Proverbs 31 women. Some people might think about that, the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, we often think about starting in verse 10. Maybe we should back up here to verse 1 and think also about the godly mother who then gives King Lemuel or, or King Hezekiah, depending on how we're looking at it, uh, this great wisdom from God. That's that's a great point to just notice how before you do get to the Proverbs 31 woman, you get another Proverbs 31 woman, the faithful mother. And how important is that, that mothers are active in speaking the Word of God to their children? As you said, the way that it plays out with husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, it often is precisely that, that the mother is going to be the one who's around the children, and she's going to be speaking the Word of God. And praise be to him for that. We should not denigrate that at all. This is a a conversation I often have with couples in their premarital counseling as they think forward to their family that God is giving them, how they will bring their children up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. And and to make exactly the point that you did, that yes, the father heads this role, but that does not mean that the mother is inactive. Uh, far from it. The, the mother is often the, the very active one doing that primary teaching, even as the father provides the, the direction, the leadership. And, and what a blessing it is when father and mother do that together. And we, we've seen that throughout the book of Proverbs, uh, as, as you pointed out in chapter four, it's in chapter one as well, where, where father and mother together pass the faith down, there is, is wisdom for the child, for the family. So, Pastor Preuss, yeah, well, go ahead, go ahead. I'll let you respond. Oh, just what, what you said, just to kind of reiterate, that we we really should uh, look at both fatherhood and motherhood as uh, centering on passing on the Word of God, first and foremost. I mean, these days you see so many who want to pass on, you know, who knows what. Uh, sometimes it's actually decent stuff. I know, you know, men who want to teach their children to, you know, sit up straight and, and do things like that and be good people, but are they teaching them God's Word? And uh, this is something that is also for mothers, and sometimes, and, and you can probably attest to this as well, uh, these days fatherhood's under attack, and, and mothers sometimes are asked to pick up a lot of the slack. And uh, it, it, we, we thank God for, for godly mothers who have had to do that in the midst of the chaos that has ensued in the last, you know, since the, the 1960s. And, and really, I mean, obviously there's always been sin, but we've seen it in our own midst for a while. And so maybe just an encouragement to see in Scripture here two mothers that uh, here he talks about an oracle that his mother taught him. Uh, not necessarily an oracle that his father taught him, but his mother here uh, tells you something about what... You know, King Hezekiah maybe was was going through himself. And so the the theme of motherhood continues into verse two, and and the mother of King Hezekiah, we'll just go with Hezekiah, says it. The way that it's worded is it's repetitive. I suppose that's pretty Hebraic to do this kind of thing. We've seen you get the parallelism in in the in the words here. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? What's the point of this repetition here in verse two? Yeah, there's a few things going on. First thing is that she 
with these three uses of the word what, uh, she's trying to get her son's attention to three pieces of advice that she's going to give. And so the first one that we'll end up discussing is the warning against sexual promiscuity. Uh, the second one is advice, advice about alcohol, both uh, against drunkenness and also the proper use of it. And then finally, the third one is uh, a call to give justice to the defenseless. So what she's doing here is, yeah, using a little bit of rhetoric, uh, showing her authority to teach Lemuel and her vocation as, as his mother. So the first thing she does is she calls him my son. Okay, well, then she strengthens it to son of her womb, showing that it's not just, you know, her son in some way other than the fact that she herself bore this child, uh, over, and so she has authority over him. And then finally, she, she calls him something that might be a little bit uh, unknown here, but I think we kind of know the answer. That's son of my vows. And so her son somehow has to do with her vows. And that might have to do that she made a vow to God like Hannah did. A lot of, a lot of commentators think that that's probably what is meant here. Uh, and we know that Hannah prayed to have a child, and God gave her a child, and she vowed to give uh, Samuel then to the Lord. And so here she is, uh, you know, had a vow to God, and God gave her this son, and now she has a sacred duty to teach her son God's Word. So she's both setting up what she's going to say, kind of a little bit of a, maybe a Attention three times, I've got three things to say, and then an intensifying of it all to show how important it is that she is saying this, that it's, very, it's her very sacred duty uh, to teach her son these things. The first topic, then the first what that King Hezekiah's mother addresses is found in verse 3. He said it was the topic of adultery, and it, it's phrased like this. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Now, the topic of adultery has been brought up many times in the book of Proverbs. It was a, a very key theme in those first nine chapters particularly. Over and over again, Solomon brought it up there, probably not only as a matter of the sixth commandment, but also a matter of the first and, and considering idolatry and false doctrine. Here we've got adultery again, and here it's specifically addressed to the matter of kings, how adultery affects kings. So, Pastor Preuss, let's talk a little bit about both here. We've got about eight minutes on this side of the break to, to tackle this topic. What's the warning against adultery, and why does it apply particularly to kings? Yeah, well, you know, the higher you are, uh, hmm. you know, the greater the fall. Yeah. And this can lead to a lot of destruction when a king commits adultery. And the example that we should readily think about here as we're going through Proverbs is clearly Solomon. And it, you know, I know it's repeated again and again and again, but it's repeated again and again and again for a reason. Uh, he, despite all the wisdom that he recorded in Proverbs, he took many foreign wives and concubines, and he, by doing that, fell into idolatry, as you pointed out, that this has a, this has a, a first commandment issue, in that he, he forsook the Lord for the sake of uh, these, these women, and, and then their gods, their foreign gods. And what did this lead to? For this king to uh, have all of this sexual promiscuity, it led to the, to the eventual split of the kingdom. And so from Saul to David to Solomon, you had one kingdom. And then after Solomon, you have uh, his son Rehoboam, 
Uh, and then you have Jeroboam and the split between Israel and Judah and the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. And so you've got northern Israel and southern Judah. And what happens to them? I mean, northern Israel is is brought into captivity and, and never returns and has a much shorter history even than, than uh, Judah does. And uh, we know that Judah is also brought into a, a 70-year captivity and, and much destruction comes upon them as well. And so when you think about what happens uh, when Solomon brings in these false gods from the sexual perversions that he uh, fell into by bringing these, these foreign women in, uh, you can see that this, this is uh, more than just, oh, I, I just committed adultery, as if that's a just, you know, that's a big deal in and of itself. But what he's trying to address here in particular is that uh, sexual promiscuity it might be warned against everywhere, but here it really does affect uh, kings. So uh, when we when we talk about the the problem of, of sexual immorality in general, it might be helpful for us to then think about vocation uh, and the three estates. So we know from Scripture that uh, God gave sex for marriage between one man and one woman for life. Um, but we also know that all three estates of the Church can have a, have a really, really terrible time when there is any uh, adultery. So think about what happens to the Church, for example, if uh, a pastor were not to be the husband of one wife and were to not uh, have uh, that, that uh, pure relationship with his wife and union with his wife, uh, but were to go beyond that, and it brings great shame not only upon him and his family, but then upon the church too. And it becomes what, you know, we call the word a scandal for a reason. Uh, this person is put in a position where it's expected that he will act a certain way and be an emblem of what Christ is to his church. Uh, and so that that's not very good for, and um, brings great destruction to the church, and, and a lot of people are misled by that. Same thing happens in the government uh, and, and in the family. And so... We should see that God doesn't take lightly to sexual sin. The example of Sodom and Gomorrah should certainly be an example of that. Uh, you think about Revelation 18, too, uh, and, and I talk about how, how much uh, destruction and wrath will come upon uh, the world because of, of these sexual sins. Uh, it's something we should all take seriously, not just in general, uh, but especially according to vocation here, here with kings. Uh, one of the things that you're bringing out very nicely, I think, is the fact that sexual immorality particularly and I think this is true of all sins, but particularly here with sexual immorality, that it has an effect not just on you as the one who has sinned, but it has an effect on, on all the other people that you're given to serve, which I think is one of the great temptations when it comes to sin is, is that I think, oh, this is only going to affect me, or it's only going to affect me and this other person in the case of, a, of adultery. No, it's actually going to have far, far wider uh, implications than than just you and one other person, and I mean, you think of the king. I mean, look as you laid out all the implications that it had for for Solomon, for the people of Israel as a whole. I mean, just the the whole history leading all the way to the exile that you. I mean, the the total destruction of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then the exile in Babylon for the southern kingdom, because Solomon didn't listen. To the own wisdom, his own wisdom, or, or and and here Hezekiah learning from it, and, that, and that's a, a wonderful thing to see that Hezekiah is is willing to learn 
from the mistakes of his great, 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 however many great grandfather Solomon would have been to see that. But just that, that's a, that's such an important thing that when, when I sin, I think it's hidden. Maybe I think, oh, God knows it. And I, but, but how, just how wide reaching my sin actually is, and particularly in the matter of sexual immorality. I mean, in, in my own, and when you, you see this playing out in other places in history as well, one of one of my earliest political memories was was the fiasco in the late 90s with uh, President Clinton and some of the, the scandal that was brought upon the country because of, of his uh, his infidelity. You know, I mean, so you, you see this playing out, and, and it is very wise of us to recognize my sin does not only affect me, it, it's going to affect those around me. And, and for the sake of love, I should avoid sin not just so that I avoid sin for myself, but for the sake of loving my neighbor as well. Well, that's exactly right. And if you think about your catechism, what sin should we confess and, and which are these? Well, he tells us to consider not just the Ten Commandments, but consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. And so when we, when we sin against any of the commandments, we're also supposed to be thinking about them in relation to ourselves as father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker, and so on. And the reason is exactly as you, you just said, too, that uh, it's, it's not just that you're sinning against God, but you're also sinning against them. It's going to have an effect on them in one way or another, um, even the small stuff. And so how much more so this adultery, which, which we know within the context of kings in, in Israel and Judah, uh, became a big problem. And you think also about how Jezebel was brought in. And, you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of ways in which we can show how terrible uh, the bringing in of, of women who are godless uh, or just uh, having sexual uh, desires unfettered uh, and in, in Solomon. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be talked about when it comes to our vocation, our place in life, uh, according to the Ten Commandments as well. Lots of wisdom here for kings, for all of us in Proverbs chapter 31. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 20th. We're looking at Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9. We've got Pastor Stephen Preuss with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Benton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, here in Proverbs 31, we've got the original Proverbs 31 woman, King Hezekiah's mother, who has given him three pieces of wisdom particularly. First, the matter of adultery and the great destruction it can it can bring upon kings and upon their kingdoms. The second piece is found in verses four through seven, which deals with the matter of drunkenness. I'll reread those verses for us here in Proverbs 31. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine 
or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So there's, there's really two sections there, I suppose. Verses four and five deal with the matter of why it is unwise for kings to get drunk. And verses six and seven deal with the matter of when making use of the gift of alcohol would be acceptable or helpful even. Let's take a look at the first section, verses four and five. What is unwise about drunkenness in the case of kings? Right, and in the case for kings. So, um, well, we'll start with that, that kings especially, there are two, there's a twofold thing here. So the first thing he says is, uh, that he receives from his mother is that lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. And you look back to like Proverbs 23, 29 to 35, that's the longest discussion of drunkenness in Scripture, and you see that it causes one to see strange things or to utter perverse things. Uh, or Proverbs 20, which says that the drunk is not wise. So for a king to be drunk would actually prevent him from loving God's wise decrees that have been handed down in the kingdom, and and that would cause him not to know how to to act then toward the people. And so the first thing he mentions is more of a breaking of the first table of the law is kind of how I would look at it, is that God's wise decrees, he's not heeding them, and that in turn would lead to the second thing that's mentioned, which is uh, he would then pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So that's to then take away from the people uh, whom he's given to serve what the Lord would have them receive through his rule as a king. So the drunkenness leads not only to forgetting the Lord and his decrees and the words that he's spoken and has been passed down through, through other kings, but also then forgetting the neighbor, uh, breaking the second table of the law. So the king, by his negligence of God's just decrees, might end up changing laws and making things just way worse, uh, because these laws were, this is, they're the laws upon which the kingdom is built, and then you'll end up hurting those who are at least able to defend their rights. Uh, so he'll get end up talking about those people uh, at the end, where he talks about advocating for the defenseless. But here, uh, you see the advice of his mother the wisdom of his mother is that you won't be able to, you know, in our language, maybe to make it a little simple, you won't be able to, to love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself if you are engaged in this. And this really gets to the heart of what we call uh, temperance or self-control. Uh, you know, a lot of people think of temperance as like the temperance movement where everybody wants to abolish alcohol. But actually, the virtue of temperance is more don't do anything and overindulge in anything so that your whole life would not be the way you'd want it to be, right? Or the way that God would want it to be. And when you're drunk, when you are uh, overindulging in alcohol, you are not able to have that whole life where you are living in, in faith toward God and in love toward your neighbor. You're not going to be able to rule. And again, the, the higher you are, the greater the fall. And so for a king especially, this is going to be the case. And, um, you know, we know that Scripture condemns drunkenness for all people, right? This, this, this is not a question. The New Testament, St. Paul says drunkenness is debauchery. It's a work of the flesh. If you un are unrepentant of this and make a practice of this, uh, it will prevent you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Uh, but for the reasons, you know, mentioned, 
it's especially harmful for those to be a drunkard who are given positions of authority, like a king in the government. Uh, and that's why you then see that. So that's the estate of, of the state, right? The government. You also see in the estate of the church warnings in First Timothy and Titus, and not just warnings, but then the, the qualifications of one who's going to be a bishop or a pastor, that he must not be one who's given to much wine or a drunkard. So it's not that it's saying, oh yeah, it's great for anybody else to get drunk. No, drunkenness is wrong. But how much more so for somebody who has such great authority? So again, well, just to reemphasize what we said concerning adultery in the matter of drunkenness, you you come upon the situation again where it's not just a sin that's going to affect me, but it's going to affect the people around me, particularly in the the second part of what you were saying that that what would happen if the king gets drunk that he would pervert the rights of all the afflicted, that he would he would no longer be able to serve his neighbor. Along, along those same, and similarly for the, the pastor as well, and, and for the father in the third estate in the, in the family. Now, along those same lines, Pastor Preuss, one of the, one of the questions that I think that pastors get asked often when it comes to something like drunkenness or even with lying or any sin is, well, what commandment am I breaking, Pastor? When it, when it comes to drunkenness, the way that, the way that I, I heard you lay it out was that it's not so much of a sin against a particular commandment as more of, this state of mind, this lack of in or this lack of temperance, to use that word again, prevents me from being able to keep the other commandments. Is is there a particular commandment that deals with drunkenness that we'd say that it falls under that one? Kind of like we say, you know, adultery falls under the sixth commandment. Does drunkenness fall under a commandment like that, or is it more is a more broad thing like you laid out? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when it comes to drunkenness, I think we need to be very clear about what it's doing to our minds. It is it is causing our minds uh, no longer to to uh, you know if we if we have excess to, to no longer be able to think and and use the the minds that God gave us. And so, uh, when if we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our minds. And yet we are purposely, uh, or even, you know, sometimes it can happen accidentally too, I suppose, but we'll just talk about drunkenness in general. When you get drunk, that that is uh, going away. And so I, would, I, would, I guess I would stick it in the, the, the issue of the first commandment just to start with, because that's a safe answer. Uh, <laughs> we know that anything can become a god, and when it becomes a god, uh, some gods are... are uh, you know, more disastrous than others. And you, you can see just from, if, if this is a book of wisdom, and there are so many, so many times where the warning is not to be uh, one who, who is indulging too much in alcohol and, and being a drunkard, because it will, it will cause you to have that mind that's not thinking according to the lines of loving God above all things and loving your neighbor as yourself, you know, and knowing, you know, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's just simply a, a first commandment issue Then it affects every other commandment. You're not going to want to call upon God's name. You're not going to want to hold his, his word pure. You're not going to want to then honor your father and your mother. You're going to bring great shame upon them. Uh, you're, you're going to be more, uh, more, you know, you think about the bar fights. Why, why are they happening at the bars? Why don't we just call them fights? Well, because they're happening with a bunch of alcohol or the adultery that happens because, you know, your your inhibitions have been, you know, 
uh, you know, taken away. And here you are, you're saying, well, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Um, a lot of stealing happens. People steal cars and, I mean, all sorts of other things and robberies uh, when they're inebriated. And uh, so we, we could go on and on and on as things people will say out loud. I'm just walking through the Ten Commandments here, yeah. right? You know that. But it, it, it just demonstrates it's kind of an overarching thing that when you when you take away your mind, you're, you're taking away uh, that which God has given you to, to then use to think through this wisdom and to have insight uh, and, and the true knowledge of what's good for your whole life and for the life of your neighbor. Mm. Uh, the, other, the other place that I, I might locate drunkenness within the Ten Commandments would also perhaps be the Fifth Commandment concerning the physical well-being of this time of, of my body, I suppose, because it's something that I would do sure. to myself. That, that God has not given me my body, soul, eyes, ears, all my members, so that I would then lose them in, in drunkenness, but rather that I would care for them as I care for all of his gifts. But but even even without that sort of specific locating of drunkenness within the commandments, which I think can be helpful, I, I appreciate the the larger picture of it as well, that it's, it's not just a matter of, okay, I'm going to put the check mark on a particular commandment. There is a place for that, but it's it's bigger than that. How does this particular state of being affect my ability to keep all the commandments, both the first table and the second table? I think it's just a, a very helpful way of, of looking at drunkenness and then of, of any other range of, of situations that we might find ourselves in where maybe it's harder to to put that tally mark under commandment one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, but to think about it in those terms, how is this either helping me or hindering me from keeping the other commandments? I think it's a helpful way to look at drunkenness and in other situations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, uh, something that we should all give give thought to when it comes to self-control, hmm. uh, that we we do not want to willingly go into things that are going to keep us from doing that which is good for uh, our faith in God and our love toward our neighbor. Uh, those are the things that we bemoan and repent of. And so uh, to know that drunkenness is that is to then put a check on it and to realize that uh, we all are, are you know, individual people, uh, but we need to make sure we understand, you know, if we are uh, partaking in a, a drink in whatever way, and we'll talk about, you know, the, the acceptable uses of that in, in a second, but that we would do so with, with the knowledge that the drunkenness uh, is not our, our goal when we're drinking. You know, you'll hear people talk that way. You know, they want to just go out and get drunk on a Friday night or whatnot. I mean, may it not be that a Christian would speak in such a way because that would lead you away from faith in Christ and love toward your neighbor. Um, it's one thing to, you know, have a drink in a social setting, as we'll talk about, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, but it's it's a, it's that's completely different than than to set out uh, to to bring shame upon yourself and upon others and to keep yourself from doing the things that God has given you to do. Um, I mean that's actually why Ham. Uh, I mean you think about the the sons of, of Noah, where Noah plants a vineyard and then gets drunk and he's naked and uh, Ham makes fun of his father uh, to his brothers and his brothers go and and don't look at their father instead they cover him. And we know the the history of Ham then and and, and Canaan, and uh, what what that brings. It brings great shame and brings a great curse. Uh, and so there's a lot related to drunkenness in Scripture that brings great great shame to to life and uh, and and prevents you from loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, with that warning in place, King Lemuel's mother does 
talk about, as you said, the acceptable use of alcohol. So again, that's verses six and seven where, where the wisdom says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. What is, what is this text and what does scripture as a whole have to say about the wise use of alcohol? Yeah, so we don't want to, to fall off on the other side and say that the use of alcohol itself is wrong. Uh, moderate use of alcohol is certainly, uh, according to Scripture, something that is at times advised, as we see here, valued as medicine uh, and for uh, relaxation. And so uh, we know Jesus turned water into wine, uh, a lot of wine, a lot of water, a lot of wine at his first miracle uh, or sign uh, in John chapter 2. So we we see that he clearly has... Uh, a favorable view toward drinking wine in one way or another. Another way you know that is through him instituting his supper, right? Uh, he tells us to partake of it often in the church with the use of wine as the carrier of his blood. And and that should give us another signal of, of it, it having a salutary use. Uh, God also makes plants that produce wine to gladden the heart of man, as Psalm 104 tells us. And so here in Proverbs 31, Lemuel is repeating this oracle passed down from his mother in regard to drinking strong drink and wine, and he gives two reasons. He says, the one, uh, first is for the one who is perishing. And the, the Hebrew here actually suggests that the man's already perishing. And so the liquor would, would be kind of a way to numb his pain. And you might think of like morphine today in hospice and how uh, you would never, and this is something we always want to remember these days too, that you would never want to use this to hasten death, but rather to relieve pain as a person is is perishing. And we hear that, you know, St. Paul even tells Timothy to, you know, mix some wine with his, with his uh, drink so that he would uh, feel better too. And so there is something medical here uh, that is probably what he's getting at with that first point. And uh, the second one, though, is is more about the, I guess we would say the, the relaxation. It says, to those in bitter distress so that they forget their poverty and remember, remember their misery no more. Uh, it is condoning a, a moderate use that would uh, lead to relaxation uh, in, in the same vein of the psalm saying that wine gladdens the heart of man. Uh, so, I mean, you've got this delicate balance, don't you? I think a lot of people want to, they want to just kind of like the Pharisees would, you think about the Mishnah, where you'd have all of these these laws that would help you keep the other laws, right? So that you, you know, just don't say God's name ever, just say Hashem, and then you'll never say Yahweh, and so then you'll never take his name in vain. Oh, wonderful, you just figured out the commandment, right? And so the way you solve drunkenness is you just never have a drink. Uh, and people will say that that's the, that's the only way to do it, and they create these laws against having having alcohol. And then you point out that there's something, you know, other things you can overindulge in. You can overindulge in food, so maybe people shouldn't be eating so much. And uh, you can overindulge in technology, so maybe you should stop checking your phone every time you have a thought that you should do it. Um, you know, so there are other ways in which you can overindulge in all sorts of things, and I would just uh, caution people not to go the other way. I think this is a part of Scripture that might help us to see that there is a moderate use of alcohol for for. Uh, you know, good reasons, um, rather than just you know your what we see with the, the drunkenness that, that was warned against 
before. So this is a position that I think is very, very important for us to remember when we're talking with people about alcohol, because you will get kind of both positions. You'll get those who are are over the top and fall off on the on the one hand and in their drunkenness and other people who who just, you know, swear it off in such a way that they actually look down on anybody who would use it for a good reason. I think that Paul's writings concerning how to deal with those who are weak in faith and and those then who are obstinate, I think, come into play when it comes to this as well. So that, I mean, think about, you know, you, you bring up someone who, who maybe has said, I'm not going to drink because I, maybe I have a tendency to be an alcoholic or, or that's in my family. Sure. So how do I, as, as one exercising the Christian freedom that you've just laid out, that is very clear in the scriptures when it comes to the matter of alcohol, how do I exercise that around that person? Well, perhaps it means I, for the sake of love, will not drink around that person. Whereas maybe in the case of, of someone who's being obstinate and who is insisting upon no alcohol whatsoever, and, and as you said, laying down a law where God's word has not perhaps I will engage in my freedom to drink in that case to remind that person of the freedom that I have in the gospel. I think the way that, that Paul, and, and he handles other things than than alcohol, like the, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, you've, you've got the issue with the Galatians and circumcision where he, you know, he, he refuses to have Titus. I think those things come into play as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, and you got to the heart of it all, you know, uh, looking at Proverbs as Christians, uh, we, we have to see that Christ has set us free, and in our our freedom, we do have freedom to use not as a cover-up for evil, evil though, um, but that we might actually live as those who are free in Christ. And so if there is a time when it might actually be a good thing for you to not drink for the sake of somebody who, you know, maybe is, is like you said, uh, you know, uh, privy to have too many, or, or maybe uh, is an alcoholic, as, as, as they're called, um, we would just we would refrain from doing that uh, in their presence, whereas with others, as you said, um, you show your Christian freedom so that they would understand that they can't just they can't make laws for you. You know, your laws are 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 those that uh, you know there where there is no law as far as uh, the fruit of the spirit, right? And following what God has actually given you to do, and so as Luther says with the Ten Commandments, we have more than enough to do with those without creating new laws. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The last piece of, of wisdom that Lemuel Hezekiah writes for us from his mother is found in verses eight and nine. He says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, the, the book of Proverbs has gone to great lengths at times to tell us to keep our mouth shut. <laughs> often, often it is the fool who is exposed by his speaking and speaking and speaking. There have been cases, though, where it is wise to speak. And here is, is one that's very specific. What is the wisdom, particularly for kings again, in opening the mouth for the mute, for the destitute? Well, you know... A word fitly spoken is a wonderful thing, and we we are to open up our mouths for certain things. And here, kind of reminding ourselves here, we kind of got off on, you know, moderate use of alcohol. Uh, this is a king, you know, we're, we're, we're still talking about advice to a king. And so why is a king to open his mouth? I mean, he obviously needs to open his mouth. And so uh, Scripture here is uh, telling us what Scripture says elsewhere, that there's an expectation for all of the good kings to value justice and righteousness, so that those who are rich and powerful don't take advantage of the weak and the poor. Uh, and it is so easy for a king to show favoritism, uh, 
Uh, he's got friendships with the rich and influential. He's got power so he can do things that he wants to do, uh, even without look, thinking about the good of others. And so he might enact policies that would deny justice for the poor and powerless. So Lemuel's mother is telling him, when you open up your mouth, she's effectively saying, don't do it for those you know, who are your friends to show favoritism to them. Instead, open your mouth for the defenseless. For those who are, are poor and are, are, are downtrodden and need you uh, to actually exercise justice for them so they're not taken advantage of. Now, I, you know, just to apply that in our day, uh, we, we can think of several issues that relate to this, but what comes to my mind immediately is, is abortion, the murder of the unborn uh, at the beginning of life there, and then also euthanasia at the end of life. Uh, rulers today, so to apply this to today, they do not advocate for the defenseless by opening up their mouths uh, to defend them, but they often remain silent in order to have political gain. I remember when I was uh, working in politics a little bit in college, and somebody, uh, we were, I was working on a campaign, and they didn't want to, to really accent abortion because, you know, they might get more votes, they thought, if they didn't talk about it. And I thought to myself, what a what a shameful thing to say, you know. I'm going. I'm not going to open my mouth to defend them. I'm instead. I'm going to keep my mouth shut in order to get gain in this world, right? Um, and and that's not the way that we should be. And so, uh, as as those who are rulers, especially here talking about the king, ad- advocate for the defenseless. You're not in that position of authority, and it should be a reminder to anyone who's in a position of th- authority. You are in that position of authority, not because God thinks you're great, but because he's given you some very uh, great responsibility that you are to then take care of others uh, who are depending upon you. That's true of a king with his people. That's true of a pastor with, with the, the church that God has given him charge over. That's true of a father uh, and a mother in the household. And so, you know, you're, we're reminded of that in the, the uh, fourth commandment, that we not only are to tell children and, and everyone else to honor father and mother and other authorities, but that father and mother would understand that God gave you that, that authority, and kings to understand God gave you that authority to be an advocate for those who are defenseless. I mean, think about little children and all the way up to those who, you know, when they grow up and, and those being in need to defend them, to protect them uh, against those who would take advantage of them. Uh, so a, a really great... Uh, a great ending to what she's saying to him, uh, to be an advocate for the defense is something we could really probably apply well to, to what Christ has done for us as our king in, in advocating for us who are defenseless against the devil uh, and against our sin and death itself. And yet Christ is our king who has come to be our defender, our good Samaritan, uh, if we will, but to be the king who actually brings forth justice uh, in this world for us by justifying us by his blood. Yeah, once again, you, you see in these two verses the effects upon others when someone sins. I mean, and particularly those in authority, that, that when one in authority sins, the effects are, are even even greater because of the effects that it has on, on the defenseless, on the poor, the needy, as, as King Lemuel lays out here. But as you said, Pastor Preuss, and I'm going to give you about another minute here, that's about what we got left, to, to really tie that all together in Christ, 
complete that thought, how does how do we see this wisdom enacted in Jesus? Yeah, well, the, the mother is teaching uh, her her son, who is a king, and you know, asking, you know, what are you doing? Uh, what, where are you going? Uh, how is your life going to be? And he he war- she warns against the the adulterous woman warns against uh, uh, drunkenness so that uh, the king will, will actually do those things that are right for the afflicted, uh, and, and then uses the, the right use of alcohol for the sake of those who are, are not doing well, and then finally ending with, with uh, using the authority and opening the mouth for the, the sake of those who are, are destitute. Uh, there's certainly something here that this, this, this advice, this wisdom, uh, is certainly par excellence in Christ himself, who is our king, uh, who has who did not uh, take advantage of anything, or, or, or uh, he did not pervert the rights of the afflicted. Instead, he, he became stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, uh, so that he might bring us into the, the royal family and, and bring us uh, the eternal kingdom and, and reign over us with his forgiveness and grace through what he's done on, on the cross. So there's a a great uh, Christological uh, ending maybe we can have with this, while at the same time seeing that she's giving great wisdom to anyone in authority, uh, and first of all, King King Lemuel. Pastor Stephen Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa, helping us this morning with Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.